Today we wrap up this three-part series in introducing Sojourn to the Refuge Church, our church plant in Cadillac. And the way that we've been going about those things is that we've been walking through kind of what's our three-word mission, three mission statement, uh, belong, discover, and transform. And those three words, though, they're, they're more than just like a catchy slogan for us. We, we actually see those three words as representative of what the path of discipleship is. What is the path toward making followers of Jesus Christ? And, and so first we saw that Jesus invites us into, uh, to find belonging in a safe and loving community as we learn what it is to become that follower of Jesus. So he invites us to belong as we learn what it is to become. And then last week we found that Jesus then, once we found that belonging, he invites us to, to lay aside all the other things that we once held valuable and to discover the invaluable treasure of him and his gospel because that's where we find true life. And so we've been through belong and discover. And so we're kind of just left at this point where like, okay, so what's next? We've come to the place where, okay, I've given, my, I've given my faith and trust over to Jesus Christ. I know that he's forgiven my sins. I believe that. Do I just kind of sit here and just wait out the rest of my days? What's, what's next? And that's where this third word comes in, uh, the word transform, because that's there that we see that, yes, Jesus saved us from our sins, but actually Jesus also saves us for something, too, so our passage this morning is in Romans 12, and it invites us to see that there is, in fact, more, uh, that the good news isn't just that Jesus can save you, but that he also wants to transform your entire life. And so to read Romans 12, 1 through 2, I'm going to invite my friend Sue Lancer, a member at the Refuge Church, uh, to read our passage. As she comes forward, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Listen as I read. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. It's a hard thing to believe in Jesus as we we're talking about last week, but it can be an even harder thing to believe that he can change us. Uh, there was a guy named George MacDonald who was a minister and author from the 1800s, and he was famous for writing these fantasy stories, these fables that were kind of like parables of deeper spiritual truths, mostly uh, given to children. And in this one story <clears throat> that he called uh, The Lost Princess, which was really an inspiration for writers like C.S. Lewis and and Tolkien, in the story called The Lost Princess, he tells us a story about this young princess who spent her entire life being spoiled and overindulged by everyone around her. And she, you know, as you can imagine, grows up to become this like self-centered, uh, angry, uh, mean kind of monster toward everyone else around her. And he make, she makes everything else miserable. <clears throat> and, and, and then one day, though, a, a mysterious wise woman, as, she called, as she's called, uh, goes to the palace and steals the princess away and takes her out to a cottage in this magical forest. And it's there where the princess starts to discover, discover just really how like, wretched of a person she is. Uh, the wise woman, she has this magical mirror. When you look in it, you see your tr a reflection of your true inner self. And so the wise woman holds up this mirror, and when the princess looks in it, she's horrified at the monster that she sees looking 
back at her. It's at that moment where she finally starts to have her heart soften, and she says this, that I am horrid, and I shall be horrid, and I hate myself, and yet I can't help being myself. I am so, so very tired. When I read that, it it struck me that, you know, that's kind of what happens when we're really fully, truly confronted with the ugliness of our sin. We're horrified. We want, we want to change, but we just don't know how. And it leaves us in just this position of weariness, exhaustion. And you know, if that's where you find yourself at, the, the weight of what it means to change, I, I wouldn't blame you if when we read Romans 12, 1 through 2, if maybe your first reaction wasn't actually a little bit of discouragement. Because these first two verses in Romans 12, they're, they're some of the most popular verses that we have in the Bible. I remember learning them as a kid in my church's Awana program. It goes all, it's one of the first things that we educate our kids with. It, it's, it's really, in church history, it's become the go-to passage for, for what we uh, teach on about what it is to live the Christian life. But if we're not reading carefully, these famous verses, the ones that we hold as so important to our Christian life, we can, we can completely misunderstand them if we're not reading carefully. This whole chapter in Romans 12 and these two verses, they, they have a lot of to-do statements, right? Uh, we're told to present ourselves as living sacrifices. We're told not to conform to this world. We're told to discern God's will. And if you were to continue reading down verse by verse by verse, you're going to see this entire list of to-do statements and not to-do statements. And by the time that you get to the end of Romans chapter 12, you could feel the weights getting heavier and heavier on your back. Man, I can't do that. I can't do all these things. I can't check all these boxes. You're going to start to grow weary like that lost princess, growing tired of yourself and wondering if there's really any hope for you to change into that. Our weariness shows up in a few different ways. Um, some of us actually truly want to, to change. We want to change our lives. We're desperate for us. We want to be good. We just don't even know how to get from point A to point B. We want to be the sort of person described in this passage. But we don't really believe it could actually happen. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like you want to change, but you know it's just impossible for you? You feel like even though Jesus tells you that he's broken the chains of sin and death in your life, that you still feel the phantom weight? of those shackles, you still feel like a prisoner to all of it. It's hard to look at all of our sin in the mirror. It's hard to look there and believe that it has no power over us anymore. And so maybe we can say, yeah, I believe that Jesus can save me, can forgive me of my sins, that he can pay the price and forgive me, but, but we have a hard time believing that Jesus can actually change us, that that's just a little too much. Others of us uh, believe that Jesus can change us, but we actually don't really like the idea of him changing every single part of us. We, we, we want him to change the parts uh, that we want changed, right? But then we kind of hold back the rest of our lives away from him. No, don't mess with that. Maybe we don't want to be humble all the time, or maybe we don't want to be generous with our money or our resources or our time. Maybe we don't want to forgive those who have hurt us. Or maybe we don't want the gospel to shape the way 
that we think about things like free time or, or family or work or politics, that those things are off limits to God. For being honest, maybe what we really want is for Jesus to be the Lord of our lives on Sunday, but to kind of back off on the rest of the week because we're king of Monday through Saturday. And then still there's some others of us that that struggle to believe that even if Jesus could change us, would he really want to use us? Would he really want to use us to build his kingdom? Because when we look in the mirror, maybe all that we see staring back at us is all the ways that we fall short, all the ways of how we are unskilled or how insignificant we are compared to everyone else. The to-do list is just too much for us. We'll never become that person. We're all tempted to believe the idea that real, lasting transformation is just impossible. Uh, at Sojourn and at the Refuge, we're, we're going to meet and we're going to minister to a lot of people who wrestle with these doubts, these disbeliefs, who feel this weariness. And, and actually, we might feel it ourselves, too. Over the last year, I've been talking, uh, I've been talking a lot with God through like, these prayer walks. Uh, I've needed the space to uh, just get out in the woods by myself and figure out what's going on in my heart. And so I just start talking out loud. It probably sounds crazy. My dog has looked at me every once in a while and wondered, like, dude, what's up? But um, I just want to see if I spoke naturally with God, didn't try to posture myself in any fancy way, what would come out? And so one day we're walking through the woods, and I'm thinking about all the ways that God has provided for this church plant the funding that's come in, the, the people that he's brought to our core team, how we found the building. I think we just found it out just a couple days before I took this walk. And, and the walk was intended to be a prayer of thankfulness <laughs> to him, um, but I still found myself in disbelief, doubting whether or not God could keep this up, really believing that maybe I was going to get in the way. And, and so I'm talking out loud, and suddenly these words just kind of spill out. I guess I trust more in my failures than I trust in your providence. It was uh, one of those times where, like, the words start falling out of your mouth. Oh, no, no, come back, come back. You're not allowed to say that. That's too honest. That's too real. But I needed to confess that. Those words needed to be said. My disbelief that God had the power to transform me and this church into what he needed it to be. That sort of doubt, it can creep into any one of us, whether you're a new believer or whether you're like the lead pastor of a church plan. It affects all of us. And, and I think it's because we have this problem that we have grown so used to death. We've grown so used to the death that once reigned in us that the idea of new life sounds actually impossible to us. When we look in the mirror, all we can see is how horrid we are. It's a difficult thing to believe that Jesus can transform that image, or even that he wants to transform that image. But if you're feeling discouraged, Romans 12 is not meaning to discourage you. It's actually a message of of assurance, of encouragement for the doubtful and weary, because this passage, in this passage, we learn that Jesus actually can transform us into people he calls us to be. Um, my, my eighth grade English teacher, she used to say to us all the time that most of the world's problems are down to poor grammar. And maybe that's just like a thing that English teachers love to say because 
Every, everything they see is how important grammar is, and I never understood it. But she used to say, most of the world's problems are due to poor grammar. And I think that could certainly explain maybe some of our frustrations with Romans 12, if that's where you're at this morning. See, if we're reading Romans 12 and we feel like it's throwing a heavy load on our backs that we can't carry, it's probably because we aren't paying attention to grammar. The grammar here really matters. So two points of grammar. I'm really sorry to do this. You guys have graduated from high school a long time ago, but we need it. Two points of grammar. First, who is doing the transforming here? I want you to look closely at verse 2 in your Bibles. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed. I'm... That's a passive verb. That's a passive voice. It's, it's something that is being done to us. The transformation is something that's done to us, not by us. We're receiving the transformation from the renewal of our minds. And who is doing it? God is. That transformation comes from God. You know, the pastor Ray Ortland, he, he, he said uh, that Jesus did not rise again so that we could just create a religious version of what already exists. Jesus did not rise again so that we could just create a religious version of what already exists. In other words, Jesus doesn't stop his work in you at the cross. He didn't stop at forgiveness. He wants more for you than that. He wants not only for you to be saved, but he also wants you to be made new. He wants to restore you to the goodness that he created you for. And so good gospel grammar shows us that our transformation, it's not just something that we're left to produce all on our own. It's actually a gift. It's a gift that we receive from God. We're saved by grace. And we're also transformed by grace. Number two, second grammar lesson that we have here is on indicatives and imperatives. It sounds fun, right? The Bible's full of them. The indicatives refer to what God has done for us, and the imperatives refer to what we do in response to God. But the temptation for us is to reverse the order, as if our imperatives, our to-dos, somehow earn God's favor, that somehow our to-dos make God do something for us in return. Maybe if I were to just prove my worth or my dedication to him, maybe if I were to just try really hard God would bless me in all the ways that I want to be blessed, that he will finish the job of transformation in me once I've started it. The gospel is clear. The imperatives always flow from the indicatives. Our, our to-dos always flow out of what God has already done for us. Look at verse 1. I appeal to you because of the mercies of God. Because of the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. There's a cause and then there's an effect. There's grace and mercy and then there's the response. Our part to play in our transformation is always a response of gratitude to the mercies that God has already done for us. See, the good news here is that there's freedom in gospel grammar there is freedom in gospel grammar, freedom from our past lives of sin, freedom from the hopeless pursuit of trying to earn God's approval through our own effort. And there's also freedom from the mistaken belief that all of the work to build his church, his kingdom, 
is on us. There's freedom from that mistaken belief too. I was out in rural Iowa uh, visiting my wife's family recently, and there's a church planter there that I met with, uh, actually in her hometown, a town of uh, 400 people out in the middle of nowhere. There's more livestock than human beings in this town, significantly more livestock. You can smell them. Um, And I'm meeting with this church planter, and they they launched not that long ago. They exploded overnight. I think they have over 200 people attending already in a town of 400. People are being saved by the dozens. People are being baptized all the time. It's one of the biggest church planting success stories I've ever heard in my life. It's, it's beautiful to watch. And this church planter at breakfast, he told me that just before his church launched, he was being assessed by a group of experienced church planters to see, you know, what does he need to work on. And they asked them the question, why are you the man to plant this church? Do you know what he said? Why are you the man to plant this church? He said, I'm not. But Jesus is. I'm not the man, but Jesus is the one to plant this church. See, that's the sort of response of somebody who understands the grammar of the gospel. It would have been so easy for him, looking back on all of his his success, to sit there with me at breakfast and say, like, well, it's because I'm pretty skilled. It's because I had all these plans. It's because of all the things that I did or how much effort or energy or heart I put into it. But he recognized, even after all that success, where the power of transformation really comes from. And it's that sort of perspective that all of us need to have whether as individuals or as Sojourn Church or as a church plant in Cadillac, the power to transform doesn't come from us. It comes from Christ alone. And so Jesus is doing the work of transformation in us. But then we have to ask, okay, so what are we being transformed into? Jesus has saved us, but what are we being saved for? Verse 1 answers that question. It says that the mercy of God transforms us into what the Apostle Paul calls um, living sacrifices. Uh, The world and culture that Paul is writing to, they're pretty familiar with this idea, this image of of a sacrifice. Uh, It was common practice to to kill an animal as an act of worship, um, both for Jews in the Old Testament and also for pagan Romans. It was something that most people would have been familiar with. And so he takes that image but he kind of spins a new meaning on it. And he says that, okay, so you want to know what a follower of Jesus looks like? It's like one who should present their own bodies as sacrifices for God. That is your act of worship. Um, now, that kind of sounds gross, right? If we're to take it literally, that kind of sounds gross. But, but Paul isn't literally telling us to, to kill ourselves here. He, he's saying that we are to be living sacrifices because someone actually has already died for us. Someone's already taken the death in our place. So we are living sacrifices. The price has been paid. Our old selves have died with Christ. And we've been given new life in him and his resurrection. And yet, in this new life that Jesus gives us, there's still a sacrifice of sorts. Uh, To be a living sacrifice, it means to surrender our life to him and his purpose. It means to lay all of our desires, all of our longings, all of our dreams, all of our former purposes, every aspiration that we once had, to lay it all down on the altar and say, not my will, 
but your will be done. Not my kingdom come, but your kingdom come. There's also an element uh, of being a living sacrifice that means uh, that we're to be uh, really a display, a living display of Jesus and his gospel to the world. That, that when our friends and our family and our neighbors and coworkers look at us, they should see evidence of who we used to be and how that old person's dead and gone. And that somebody new has come. That there's been a transformation here. Questions should come out of looking at our life and saying, what happened to you? And the answer is that Jesus reigns in us now, that he is on the throne of our lives. And it's not just part of us. It's not just part of our lives, just the part that we want him to change. It's actually all of us. You see, in verse 1, Paul says that our bodies are to be living sacrifices. And at first, we could take that literally as if, is he talking about like the flesh and bone of our bodies? But actually, uh, there's, there's a, we can't quite capture the meaning of what this word here means. Usually, our English Bibles do a great job of translating from the Greek to the English and capturing the entire idea of all the words. But the word here for body in the Greek is a word called somata. And it can mean your physical body, but more often what it means is your entire self, your body, your mind, and your soul, every part of you, your, your private life, your public life, every dimension of your life. And so when Paul says that we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices, what he's saying is that no part of your life is off limits to the transformation that Jesus wants to bring you. Now, depending on um, your, your church background, wherever you might have grown up in the church, when you think of the Christian life, you might think most often about like um, Bible studies, private uh, devotional times and prayer times. Or maybe you think about um, community service projects or going on missions trips, that these are your acts of worship. But the hope that this passage provides us is that God doesn't just settle for parts of you. God doesn't just settle for your private life. God doesn't just settle for one week out of the year when you go to some other country and serve him. Now, the good news is that Jesus actually wants to transform all of you. He wants it all. He wants to make you a new person no matter what's on your schedule, no matter where you are or who you're with. Right now, we're talking about this idea with our core team as we prepare for our church plant. Uh, This idea that Jesus calls us to be his disciples in all of life the idea that he can use even our most um, ordinary, everyday things for his mission. And so we're inviting ourselves to ask the question, like, imagine what would happen if we saw our workplace as God's mission field. Imagine what we would do in the nine to five. Can God transform us there? Imagine how that would shape the way that we treat our customers or our coworkers. Imagine how that would help us run our businesses ethically, with integrity. Or maybe imagine what would happen if we asked Jesus to, to change the way that we think about our neighborhoods and our homes. Uh, would he help us to see that there's always an extra seat at our dinner table? Would he help us to see that maybe our calling to go preach the gospel to other people isn't always over there in some other place, but maybe it's actually right where he's already called us to? with the people that we're already with, our family, our friends, our neighbors? What about our free time and our resources? What could he do with those things? Are there things that we're drawing the line and saying, no, Jesus, not that? 
Don't cross this line of my life. This is my space. That's your space. If there is the good news, and it might not sound like good news at first, but it is good news, Jesus wants to tear that line down because he promises you he has a better way than what we've settled for. When we're ready, when we're ready to lay our lives down on that altar, Jesus responds by transforming us into the type of people who actually make other people want to be transformed too. He makes us into witnesses of the transforming power of his love. That's what the rest of chapter 12 is about. I know we didn't read it, but if you look at your Bibles, that's where the the long list of fruit from this good news comes from. Verse 3 through 21, they talk about how arrogance gets transformed into humility, how vengeance turns into forgiveness, how self-centeredness changes into generosity, how your comfort zones get expanded, how the wealthy start associating with the lowly, how the righteous start befriending sinners. And in a culture where we're constantly going to war with words and ideas, the gospel can even transform us to be messengers of peace and hospitality to even our enemies. There is some amazing fruit in this promise that Jesus can make us new. Because when nothing is off limits, Jesus can transform you into that living display of hope. That when the world looks at us, they see, huh, maybe there's really something here. Maybe there's a power that I need to check into. Maybe there's hope for me too. Uh, Now, if you're still here and and you're looking through this list in Romans 12 and you still feel a little bit of discouragement by all the to-dos that you just haven't gotten to yet, let me just encourage you with one thing. Romans 12 is not assuming that all of this happens overnight. It's not as if one day you're just some hideous awful, broken sinner, and then the next day, you're the closest thing to Jesus. No, this is actually a lifelong process. There's an already but not yet component to the transformation that Jesus brings us. The already side of things, on one hand, Jesus has already saved you. He's already broken the power of sin in your life, and we need to trust in that, that we are freed from a life of sin, that we are freed to a life of goodness, He's already won us this new identity, and we just need to believe that more and more every day and live into that new identity. So when you feel discouraged and you look in the mirror and you're only able to see all of the ways that you've fallen short, know that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus reigning in you, even if you don't live fully like that yet. His heart When he looks at you, is not filled with condemnation. His heart is filled with compassion. He wants to give you hope. But on the other hand, uh, this transformation, um, the not yet part of it, it it is a lifelong process. What we're going to be in a year or 30 years should not look like what we are today. By the grace and provision of Jesus, we should be better tomorrow than we are today. Sometimes that happens really fast. There's going to be seasons of our life where it just speeds along, and then other days it can happen really slow. But the sure promise of the gospel is that one day our Savior will return and make us fully new, that he is going to bring his his transformation project in our lives to its fullest completion. 
Paul says elsewhere that, that one day that veil is going to be lifted up. And you and I, if we believe, we're going to look Jesus in the face and suddenly we are going to be transformed fully into that same image, the image that we were created to look like. In the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed and made new for eternity. That is some good news. And so you may be here this morning and you may not think that you have the power to change. But Jesus does. Jesus has the power to change you. You may not want to change, but Jesus has the desire that he can give you and place in your heart. You may not think that he can use you to build his kingdom, but Jesus actually wants to display his kingdom and his mercy even in your weaknesses. You may feel so discouraged about how far you have still yet to go. But Jesus is promising you he's going to be there with you each step of the way, changing you day by day. So you see, the call of discipleship, it is impossible. We're right about that. The call to be a follower of Jesus is actually impossible. It's just a really good thing that we have the one who can make the impossible possible. He is at our side. He can work the impossible in us. Jesus is not done with you yet, for he who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. In George MacDonald's fable, he, the, he speaks through the princess, and she, where we left off in that story, she said, I'm just so very tired of myself, but I can't rest. I must keep trying. But the wise woman, who's really a type of Christ in this story, she replies, rest is actually the only way to get rid of your weary, shadowy self. And so come, my child, I will help you all I can, for now I can help you. See, the wise woman shows the princess the magic mirror one more time. Princess is still a little gun shy of what she's going to see in that reflection. She remembers how hideous she looked the last time that she saw it. She's still ashamed. But now, to her surprise, when she looks in the second time, this time the mirror reflects back an image of beauty and grace. The princess had changed. For no longer was the mirror reflecting back the princess's sin. Now the mirror had actually become the wise woman's eyes. The princess was seeing herself through the wise woman's eyes. No longer was she this lost sinner. No longer was she this hideous monster. But she had been transformed because she had been resting in the wise woman's help. Friends, the, the call to discipleship, the call to follow Jesus as one of his disciples, it's not to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and try and try and try to change what you just know you can't. That's not the way. The call of discipleship is to rest, to rest in the love and the power of your Savior. The call is to rest in the confidence of knowing that his deepest longing is actually to make you new, to make you know and live in the goodness and the perfection of his will. And so at the Refuge Church, our prayer is that Jesus will make us a church where we would be witnesses to, to that, that transformation in people's lives day by day. 
that Jesus would bring people into our services and into our living rooms who, who are done trying to fix themselves and who are ready to lay their whole lives down on that altar, trusting in the promise that Jesus can pick up those pieces and transform us into the people that he calls us to be. But at the refuge, we, we pray not only that Jesus would, would help us minister to those people, but we recognize that's our need too. Whether it's the pastors or the core team or other leaders or volunteers, we pray that God would teach us to leave no part of our life off limits for the work that he can do in us, resting in the power of his mission that he set for us. A place to belong, a truth to discover, and lives to be transformed by the grace of God. May make it so. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we thank you that it's not all on us. Man, if, this, if this, these three weeks have taught us anything, it's, it's that every step of the way as we learn what it is to become one of your followers, we find that you are running to us with more grace and more grace and more grace. So God, we ask that you would soften our hearts to desire the transformation that you want to bring us, that we would trust in your promise that you can make us new. And that you would even use us to see that transformation work, that mission be spread throughout our church, throughout our community, with everyone that we meet. Jesus, thank you that you have done everything necessary. Help us trust in that every day.